The following program was pre recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and tonight on the show, early in his administration with an executive order, President Joe Biden called for a review of expedited removal of folks arriving at our border within 120 days. So tonight we're going to talk with Yael Shacker of Refugees International, which just last week issued its latest report written by her addressing the legacy of expedited removal, border procedures, and alternatives for reform. She's up at the back half of the show. But uh, coming up, we're also going to talk about Utah DACA. It's a new tools and resources uh, website for undocumented immigrants and dreamers in our community. Karina Segura and Matt Gale will join us to talk about it. Also, Local Voices, 20 Years of Equality Utah, the latest placat display from Craft Lake City on 3rd South in downtown Salt Lake. We'll find out more with Craft Lake City's Angela Brown and Troy Williams of Equality Utah. Plus, a clip of a conversation that community co-host Nick Burns had with Salt Lake author Sadie Hoagland on her new book, Strange Children, which comes out tomorrow. And we'll tell you how you can catch up for a book launch with Sadie as well. First, though, it's rallies and resources, and the legislature is in session, so we called up our friends at the League of Women Voters of Utah, and Catherine Weller, co-president, is joining us for a preview of what was supposed to be interim, but now, according to a press release I just received and everyone was anticipating, a special session in order to deal with, in no small part, the amount of federal money coming our way from the America Rescue Plan. Is that what it is, Catherine Weller? That's part of it. Yeah. This week is um, actually pretty busy. I, As I was logging into this call, I was pondering about how the legislature is so proud that they can do everything in 45 days and how we have repeated special sessions every year. And of course, COVID is, is an exception. And that is a lot of what will happen in the special session on Wednesday. It starts at 9.30 a.m., both the House and the Senate will be in session, and that can be observed on the legislature's website at le.utah.gov. They are called in to deal primarily with federal funds available through the American Rescue Plan, but they're also going to be making some technical changes to bills passed in 2021 and discuss some additional bills that people have wanted to discuss. Um, The The ones that we are paying the most attention to are the allocations of federal funding, the uh, changes to fiscal years 2021 and 2022 budget appropriations intent language. There um, are some proposed amendments to public notice requirements for certain government actions that will address the unintended consequence of eliminating newspaper publication announcements. So, you know, that's always been a standard way we are notified about governmental actions, and we can't anymore. Additionally, they're going to make some corrections to technical errors in the group gang enhancement amendments. You remember that's the one that says a gang is three people or more. And so the other issue is modifying deadlines relating to the Independent Redistricting Commission. Um, And... A reminder, there are two redistricting processes that are going to happen, and this is the independent commission. And we will be uh, watching to see what those dates are. Um, It all, of course, has to do with the census delays. Um, Of note, the governor who called them into session did not give them 
permission to talk about uh, making the state of Utah a Second Amendment safe haven or to talk about the highly volatile in some circles uh, critical race theory bills they want to discuss. I he was curious. To be given. Yeah. And, you know, there is he ha- he wrote them a letter following his proclamation that is more than two pages. And he talks about that specifically in that letter. So I think it's really interesting to read all of the accompanying documents, his letter. And then he refers to the Sutherland Institute's uh, public statement on critical race theory as well. Interesting. So and I, I'll post a link to the letter. Stuff. Yeah, I'll post a link to the letter so folks can can read it because I was curious whether or not uh, he would allow that in special session. He has some control over that. And in the letter, folks, he talks about letting the state school board do its job and uh, not getting ahead of it when it comes to critical race theory. So look for that in the show notes tonight. But Catherine, as a league, you all kind of split up and watch different things outside of these special session issues and the American Rescue Plan money. Anything on your plate that uh, you want to kind of raise a red flag or call out here? Uh, There is an executive appropriations meeting today at two. So by the time people have heard this report, that will have happened. And they are going to discuss numerous new non-COVID related federal and foundation related grants, as well as CARES Act disbursements. We're watching for uh, things dealing with public lands and environment in particular. On Tuesday is the interim session. And um, just a reminder here, in interim sessions, they use a standing committee that is made up of members from both the House and the Senate and is co-chaired by a member of the House and the Senate. What um, I am looking at in particular is government operations, which will be modifying the redistricting timeline at 8.30. And they will also talk about their study of election methodologies. It includes ranked choice voting and approval voting, which, as you know, the league supports voting methods that make it easier for people to vote. We believe ranked choice voting does that. Um, Several municipalities will be using ranked choice voting this upcoming municipal election cycle. So that study is going to be very interesting. And finally, the, the legislature's redistricting committee. So this is the legislature itself because they have final say on everything with redistricting that they have their first meeting, I believe, today at 430 And um, they're going to discuss the whole process, including the legal and procedural guidelines they'll be using, redistricting principles. And the thing that we're really watching right now for as a league is the redistricting software. That will all be at 430 on Tuesday. Catherine Weller from the League of Women Voters, I think it bears repeating. We have a 45-day general session that starts in January every year, but so much more work gets started during interim. And so folks really need to pay attention as these sessions ramp up over the summer and into the fall, right? Yes, very much so. And I will note that there will not be a special session in, I believe they're taking off July and August. Um, Alec, the, the, the group that creates model legislation for uh, corporate business concerns, essentially. And the American Legislative Exchange Council. Those are the guys. Their national meeting is in Utah 
at the end of July. So they'll all be here. And our uh, representative, nope, it's Stuart Adams, is the head of ALEC this year. So that's going to be a really interesting thing. Stuart Adams is the head of ALEC this year, and he is uh, president of the Utah Senate. Um, And the interim sessions, not special, but interim sessions will not be held in July and August. So, again, pay attention, folks. Uh, Work with nonprofits like League of Women Voters to keep an eye on the people's business. Where can people find out more about the League, Catherine? They can find out about the League at lwvutah.org. We have special pages for redistricting right now with all kinds of information. And we're also uh, ramping up some nice natural resources pages as well. Thanks so much, Catherine. We'll put links in the show notes. Craft Lake City and Equality Utah have announced a new streetside installation, Local Voices, 20 Years of Equality Utah, on view outdoors in downtown Salt Lake through June 30th. And it's along, it's 14 steel frames along Broadway, 3rd South between 2nd West and 200 East, celebrating 20 years of Equality Utah. Joining us from that nonprofit is Troy Williams. Hey, Troy, thanks for joining us. Great to be back. And also Angela Brown from Craft Lake City. Thanks, Angela. Thanks so much for having us today. So remind folks what placats are and what this tradition comes from and the partners that are involved in this display. Yeah, so Craft Lake City, we have essentially the contract to curate these placats or metal steel frames that you can find in downtown Salt Lake City along 300 South or Broadway. And uh, these 14 placats run from 200 West to 200 East. And, you know, every few months we try and work with a different partner, whether it's a local artisan or in this case, a nonprofit partner like Equality Utah and amplify their message and their voice to the community to see for free, essentially. So this is, I think, is it the second year or has it been longer that you partnered with Equality Utah to shine a light on the LGBTQ plus community? This is our third year partnering with, with Equality Utah. And Troy, the last two I've been able to help out and record some audio for an audio tour that complements these frames. But this is a, a, a big mile marker, 20 years of Equality Utah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing uh, that we've been doing this work for two decades. Uh, in 2001, uh, Doug Wortham, uh, Jim DeBacchus, and Michelle Turpin, they were frustrated and upset with the status quo and the constant nonstop attacks on the LGBTQ community. So they got together over dinner and they formed uh, the the state's first LGBTQ political pack. And originally it was called Unity Utah. Uh, But in 2004, uh, the state passed Amendment 3 uh, by referendum, which modified the state constitution to prohibit any form of relationship recognition for same-sex couples. And so we evolved at that point to Equality Utah and became a 501c3 and c4 that allows us to lobby up on Capitol Hill so we can more actively um, and proactively engage um, our lawmakers uh, to protect our community. One of the stories that I remember recording for the audio tour was just, it was striking about how far we've come. And that was, you know, that period in time when, uh, was it pumpkin bread was delivered to Senator mm-hmm. Bramble? Butters. Butters, Senator butters, Chris butters. Chris right. butters. <laughs> and what a remarkable thing that was to to sit down with him and for folks to just see the LGBTQ community as everyday people. And then sure. at the same time, Troy, I'm looking at CNN and the headline today is Tennessee governor signs controversial bathroom bill into law yep. that uh, uh, is discriminatory toward transgender individuals. And uh, it, it really underscores how far we've come and how much more work we have to do 
when it comes to our LGBTQ community? Yeah, I mean, we've seen the transgender community um, under attack all across the country this year with unprecedented bills uh, to restrict uh, the access of young trans kids from seeking medical care, uh, from prohibiting trans kids from participating in school sports. And in Tennessee, of course, prohibiting kids from using uh, bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity. Um, These are unprecedented attacks, Um, but uh, here in Utah, they haven't been able to um, move forward. They've certainly tried, uh, but you know, thankfully, we've had this amazing infrastructure in place for two decades that, that grew. You know, because we we were under attack, um, you know, 20 years ago on so many levels. You may remember uh, when Gail Rizika uh, was was very successful temporarily um, at, at uh, banning gay straight alliances in public schools. Um, it was those kinds of, of attacks against our community that really inspired uh, people to form Equality Utah. Now, Angela, the power of we is one of the the placats this year, and you'll be diving into it with Troy and other partners later this week. Yeah, we're doing a Lunch and Learn this uh, this Wednesday on the 19th at high noon. You can log in just over Zoom remotely wherever you are, your phone, at work, at home, wherever you please. And yeah, we'd love to have you join Troy and I as we have kind of go into a deep dive about the history of Equality Utah over the past 20 years and how that is reflected in this street side installation, installation that's available for free essentially 24-7 along Broadway for the public to go and walk at their leisure. And if you take your smartphone and you use the lens function on your camera to access the QR codes, you can hear folks in your ear sharing the stories of the last 20 years. So again, Craft Lake City, Equality Utah, the Temporary Museum of Permanent Change in the Center for the Living City, creating this local voices placat display on view through the end of June. What's a website, Angela, where folks can look it all up and uh, plan their visit? Yeah, just go to craftlikecity.com and you can find all the information to register for free for the Lunch and Learn this Wednesday, as well as to get to those links like you were saying and hear that audio tour. And special thanks to KRCL for your part in helping us produce those audio links. Absolutely. Happy to. And Troy, what's the website for Equality Utah where folks can uh, get engaged and plan the next 20 years of politics and action? (laughs) Visit us at equalityutah.org. Thanks, Troy and Angela. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Coming up later in the hour, we have Yael Shacker from Refugees International to talk about addressing the legacy of expedited removal, border procedures, and alternatives for reform. But closer to home, we have joining us from Simple Citizen, Karina Segura and Matt Gale with the launch of something called Utah DACA. So Matt, Karina, thank you for giving us some time on the show today. Yeah, thank you. We're so excited to be here. First of all, tell us about Simple Citizen and how you get to this Utah DACA launch. Yeah, Simple Citizen, we are a technology company based here in in Salt Lake City, and we have two businesses. We have a consumer business, which is sort of like TurboTax, but for immigration documents like citizenship and green cards. And we have an enterprise business, which is large companies that are hiring foreign nationals here in the U.S. or sending their people to a place where they need work authorization. We were acquired by the largest immigration law firm in the country, Fragaman, in September of last year. And we love working with the community and doing whatever we can to help the immigrant community here in Utah. And so we've partnered with a lot of nonprofits to uh, build utahdaca.com. So utahdaca.com is a place where folks can find tools and resources for DACA recipients, undocumented immigrants, and dreamers. So Karina, tell us about this platform and, and how it, it came together 
and who it's for. Even though I just said that, I would like to know a little bit more personally how you're going to work to get this to the community that needs it. Yeah, I'm actually going to hand it over to Matt, who's been with Simple Citizen for a few years and actually spearheaded um, utahdaca.com. So go ahead, Matt. I'll tell you a little bit of background and then Karina can tell you sort of what we're doing right now and what's the boots on the ground. So we started doing this um, back in 2017 when we started working with Voices for Utah Children to help the Dreamer community. This was right before the first DACA ban um, under the Trump administration. And uh, we worked with them in the Mexican consulate of Salt Lake City to help hundreds of dreamers to submit their initial DACA application. And a dreamer is uh, someone who came here as a child and doesn't have a legal status. So so DACA or Deferred Action for Early Childhood Arrival gives them the ability to work legally in this country and uh, protection from deportation as well. And so um, throughout the Trump administration, there were serious challenges for the dreamer community and at one point they weren't able to submit their initial DACA application and just do renewals and so we continued to work with with Voices for Utah Children and the Mexican Consulate of Salt Lake City to help all the dreamers within our community and uh, eventually we got together with some of these other nonprofits and we built utahdaca.com and I'll let Karina tell you a little bit about the nonprofits we're working with and what uh, utahdaca.com actually is. Karina. Yeah, so we're working with the UIC, which is Utah Immigration Collaborative, the IRC, International Rescue Committee, uh, the Catholic Community Services of Utah, um, Comunidades Unidas, Holy Cross Ministries, um, Immigrant Legal Services, like all of the, and, and uh, you know, the University of Utah as well. Um, we have like BYU, Utah State, um, a lot of these different organizations kind of um, you know, filling this need, right? There's a lot of DACA recipients who already have DACA um, in the state of Utah who need help renewing it, um, as well as like their initial applications. So what utahdaca.com is, are these resources, right? So a lot of people um, may need financial assistance for um, the government fees, right? Where they're not able to pay those. So uh, the Mexican consulate, um, is helping Mexican nationals with their DACA fees, for example. Um, and then really, uh, aside from all of these different resources that we have, um, Simple Citizen is automating the DACA application process. So what that means is a DACA recipient can go on our website, do everything online, fill out an application online, um, get legal uh, assistance as well, um, and then do everything as easily as they can, right? It's already such a difficult process. So we're trying to make it accessible and easy for somebody um, to be able to do that process all online and send it to, to the government. Well, and the Mexican consulate is very active in this regard, but there's so many other folks who qualify under DACA from other countries and other situations. So pulling this all together can be really helpful. What have you been hearing, Karina, from folks as you start to get the word out about this? Uh, how is this welcome news? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, to get uh, an attorney is very costly, um, you know, to find somebody who's able to, to help in any way does cost so much money. So automating it, making it kind of a one-stop shop where you have resources, again, whether it's something that financial aid that you're needing, or if it's just simply, hey, I need some questions answered and I don't want to pay an attorney 
$1,500, right, or more to just get simple answers. And that's kind of what we're doing um, is simplifying such a convoluted, you know, process for a DACA recipient. There's already so many other things they need to worry about. And um, our hope is that, you know, by automating this and by providing these resources, they have somewhere and, and our community can feel like, you know, someone's in their corner. Great. So what is the website one more time? And do you have any outreach events or things coming up you want to point people at? Yeah, so we, they can, anyone can go to simplecitizen.com and they can get immigration help for lots of different immigration application types. Um, and they can go to utahdaca.com where we put together this syndicate of nonprofits, uh, university and uh, educational partners and the Mexican consulate. And uh, they can get financial resources through the consulate or through Voices for Utah Children. Um, and uh, they get help to file an application, whether through the UIC or our other partners or through Simple Citizen Online. We'll ship the application to their door and they'll send it right off to the government. The last thing I wanted to add is, uh, in addition to the work that we've been doing to help the dreamer and the undocumented community, we have been working with Utah lawmakers to show them why the dreamer community uh, adds so much value to the state of Utah and why they deserve a path to citizenship and why they should uh, move forward on legislation that would give dreamers a path to citizenship. We've spoken with uh, uh, um, Mitt Romney, we've spoken with uh, uh, Blake Moore and others to uh, help, help show them that the Utah community is in support of a path to citizenship for dreamers. And uh, we're actually working with lots of organizations and companies in the state to add their support for dreamers and a path to citizenship uh, by adding uh, their information on the website. And so uh, you can uh, look out for that. And if there are any organizations that want to support what we're doing, uh, feel free to reach out. You can contact me at Matt, M-A-T-T, at simplecitizen.com. And uh, we'll throw your logo up on the website and show you support Dreamers. Well, thank you so much, Matt Gale and Karen Segura of Simple Citizen and the newly launched Utah DACA. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. To close out Rallies and Resources, Community co-host Nick Burns spoke with Utah author Sadie Hoagland about her new book, Strange Children. She's also the author of a short fiction collection, American Grief in Four Stages, and assistant professor of English at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She also directs the creative writing program there. Tomorrow night, 6 p.m. online, the King's English Bookshop will help her launch her book with a virtual conversation with fellow author Lance Olson. The book, Strange Children, here's a bit of the synopsis. In a polygamist commune in the desert, a 14-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl fall in love and consummate that love, breaking religious law. They are caught, and a year later, she gives birth to his father's child while the boy commits murder 400 miles away, a crime that will slowly unravel the community. Told by eight adolescent narrators, this is a story of how people use faith to justify cruelty and how redemption can come from unexpected places. Though seemingly powerless in the face of their fundamentalist religion, these, quote, strange children shift into the central framework of their world as they come of age. And now community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with author Sadie Hoagland. The novel is Strange Children, and I appreciate being able to read it in advance. Um, I want to ask about your research and your inspiration and so on about this book, because I think anyone from the Inner Mountain West who's going to read Strange Children is going to think of Short Creek 
and think of the fundamentalist Mormon community there. But that's not exactly the world you've created, although there's certainly some similarities. Yeah, so this world is definitely fictional. I'll start by talking about my inspiration. I grew up in Utah, and um, I grew up sort of fascinated with polygamy, partly because my grandmother would tell me stories about our ancestor. This is sort of the family legend that our ancestor was a polygamist wife who was very unhappy with polygamy. And um, the day she was the first wife and the day that her husband bought curtains for the third wife was the day she decided to leave her husband oh. in the church. <laughs> so, so this is yeah. like the origin myth of why my family didn't grow up LDS, even though everyone else in our neighborhood was LDS. So that was sort of polygamy was yeah. kind of always in my imaginary as a child. And um, as I got older, I kept thinking about it and kept thinking about writing about it. I was interested in uh, voices, uh, first person narration, which we talked a little bit about last time with my uh, short story collection. Um, and definitely was still kind of wanting to explore what first person narration could do in terms of narrative and identity. And about that time, my brother, who's a lawyer in Utah, um, told me this, and this is a while ago, so I don't know that it's actually true still, but at the time he told me, uh, if you want to serve um, on certain juries in Utah, you have to um, answer a question about whether or not you believe in blood atonement. Whoa. So that was something, I mean, that's an old Mormon doctrine. Of course, it's the idea that if you spill the sinner's blood, you save them in eternal life. And so that sort of com- compiled with my um, fascination to this idea of what what would it take to create someone what what is it what how does someone come to believe that how does someone come to believe that their actions could be justified in this way what kind of a mechanism of a childhood of growing up could create that so um that's kind of the question that started this novel off and then lots of research after that oh so i mean the novel is strange children um it's set in a polygamist commune in the desert somewhere um, you have uh, a young man, very young man, and a young girl, fairly pubescent. They end up falling in love, having sex. They break the rules, um, and things go, I would say, sideways from there. So to me, you've got like some Lord of the Flies meets Romeo and Juliet. And yet, you know, I don't find these kids all that strange. You know, you have them telling their own stories. Most of them have these first-person, chapter-by-chapter accounts. A couple of them are third-person, depending on where they are in their lives and so on. But considering their kids, I don't find them all that strange in how they react to this world they live in. Yeah, I think that's one of the... I, I That's good. I'm glad to hear that you you don't find them too strange. Strange Children um, is a quote from the book and also the Bible. Um but I, yeah. I, I think that one of the things that I really was trying to do in this book was to really get people to think. This is, too, when I first started writing, this is like the era of big love and sister wives. There was a lot of fetishizing of polygamous communities going on. And I really wanted us to not be so comfortable with our sort of outsider position of, oh, we would never participate in that kind of systemic abuse or in that kind of system. Um, but I think if you grow up, and that's all you've known, of course you will, right? And so it. I think that I'm glad these children seem at home in their environment because I was, I was very interested in them through their stories, solidifying their own identities and their own position in the community. Well, they certainly have different levels of comfort, I think, in the community, depending on their, I almost want to say their hierarchy, mm-hmm. who they might be paired off to. 
Um, and I also would say how or if they've been raped um, mm -hmm. or and there's also older. I mean, this is not a really happy place for a lot of women, but yet these are kids. And if you grow up in an alcoholic family or your mom's a heroin addict, that's just life. So I guess in terms of your research, as we just said, you've got a number of these. What is there? Eight or nine or ten different narrative voices here, eight different adolescent narrators. How did you come to choose who should tell their own story and and who all you wanted to tell their story when when it's third person? That's fascinating to me in this in this book. Sure. So at first, um, the character that has the third person narration is Jeremiah, who's the boy you mentioned who was ki he's kicked out of the community at right. the end of the book, and it's his crime that sort of unravels the community later. And um, with him, I was really thinking about victim and predator and and those delineations um in the book for me he's he's kind of the ultimate victim um in the sense that he very quickly begins to feel he has no control over his life but from a plot standpoint he's certainly not just a victim at all um and so i wanted to kind of trouble that and so putting him in third person allowed me to sort of take away his agency in the way that i felt he would feel at that point in the book that he would he's already been kicked out he already feels that he is um, that his life is over because his promise of eternal life and everything that he was living for has already been taken away from him. So that was important to me that his voice be taken away from him to kind of mimic that. Um, and I'll give a shout out in my research too. There's a wonderful documentary called Sons of Perdition um, that interviews uh, what uh, we popularly term lost boys. Uh, they right. don't know that term, but um, uh that that interviewed uh, young men talking about this, talking about feeling this way. And so that was definitely um, really important to me. I also um, interviewed a, a young man and had him drive me around a Short Creek Hilldale area and um, tell me about his childhood growing up there. And one of the things he said to me was, I can't imagine a better childhood at the end of it. And of course, he's a male and that gets at what you were saying earlier, that this this experience is very different depending on gender and depending on where one sits in the community. But I think that also that that sentence more than anything else that he told me that day really struck with me. Oh, interesting. And because I mean, he you're 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 if you want to say main character, he is thrown out of the community and whatnot. But you also have a girl who comes in and joins the community. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is, you know, and, and she seems to have a wisdom quite different than the others who are basically her same age. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to say 15 ish, maybe at least when we first meet her. And yet because she's sort of a runaway, I want to say more of a street kid but yet really comes to embrace this community for any number of reasons. It's a, it's a super interesting juxtaposition. And, and I was curious also about how do you see her fitting into the importance of telling the story, this outsider who becomes a joiner? Yeah, I think she allows um, a little bit of uh, sympathy with the reader because the reader is also the outsider. And so I think she's a, she kind of has that in-between state where she can say, um, yeah, this is strange, but hey, it's better than living on the street. Um, she also, to me, represents, uh, and this this community isn't doesn't exactly follow all the rules of sort of the cults we see in the news, but sort of the the idea that cults certainly draw the most vulnerable people in our population. And she has every reason to want to stay there because she has safety, as she says, and food, and um, relatively more stability than she's had yet in her life. 
And it seems like and maybe I'll go a little bit out on a limb here that she is, I want to say, comfortable or accustomed to sort of the commodification of sex. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's sort of an implication that she might have survived on the street with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and here in the community, like you say, there's food and she's married off to one of the big wigs, if you will. Um, and, and it seems like her attitude about sex as a young uh, pregnant girl, ultimately, is, is somewhat different than some of the other young women um, and their issues with being, I want to say, raped or married off. Mm-hmm. Although I don't see much difference um, in this community. Oh, certainly, yes. Yeah. She has a she has a comfort with it. I think uh, Cadence is her name, and I think her line is, um, "My mom always said nothing's free in this world," and so she very much sees it as as a trade off. Um, and then that line, uh, Jeremiah ends up thinking of a lot in terms of what he gives in terms of his story and the favors he gets back uh, when he joins the greater world. Um, but yeah, the I think that those are probably some of the most difficult parts of the book to write are the the less um, the less comfortable uh, rape scenes, um, the thinking about uh, what this would mean in their community, where being partnered off with powerful men is is so they're supposed to feel good about that. Um, and yeah, you've, you've won the lottery. Yeah, exactly. You get oh. to, you get to be so and so's wife. He's only twenty years older than you, um, and so and, and yet the complicated feelings that that some of the narrators wouldn't would welcome that, and then some certainly would not. Yeah, how did you keep yourself sane when you were in the mind of these characters and this is happening to them, and you're writing their stories first person? I mean, it's it's difficult to be an outsider and read what happens to some of these girls. I was really, um, as a writer, I always think of the the tool of language, and I was really um, swept up in the language and voice of these characters, and um, particularly the rhythm of um, Anna Lou, who is uh, used quite early on in the book in that way, is um, that piece is, um, for me, when I read it out loud, it's breathless. Like, I don't take breaths. I have to remind myself take a breath because it is, and that's how I wrote it, too. It was like diving underwater. It was like, I got to get through this. Um, but in my in my fictional world and the world I inhabit when I write, the characters going through it, I have to bear witness to it. Yeah. But still, at the same time, because you've created these characters and given them their own voices and they tell their own stories in first person, I found a very intriguing strength in these girls' powerlessness mm-hmm. because they're telling us their stories, right? It's not like you say, in some cases, you're telling the story as the narrator in third person. But for most of these young gals, they're telling their story. And to me, that really put me in an intriguing place. I found them quite powerful, even though they might be victimized, even though they might not see the world super clearly, it is their world. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found some strength in that, even though they are also victims. And I thought, I wondered if that was a conscious a conscious attempt on your part in creating the book was to make these young women strong. That's a really nice articulation of that tension between that sort of first person narration and then the the victimizing positions they're put in. I think that um, this is a connection with my previous book uh, that we talked about last time too, Uh in the sense that in that book, American Grief in Four Stages, characters are using narrative um, to to kind of move through trauma in productive ways and kind of 
extreme narrative posturing to move through trauma. I think that perhaps this is happening in this book as well, where um, where there's uh, there is agency in the first person narration that is not in the situation that allows them to digest their world. It allows other characters to justify certain beliefs. It allows other characters to sort of manipulate the truth and the ethics and the morals of what's going on. Um, and it, it, it is very adolescent and coming of age in that way, in the sense that some of the narrators are sort of saying, well, this maybe wasn't the best thing I could have done, but, but I yeah. think it's okay because. Um, so, so I think they do use narrative for power um, in many, many different ways. But I'm glad I felt I didn't see these characters as being complete victims. Um, and that was part of my goal okay. going project where I didn't want to fetishize the community. I didn't want to um, simplify it and I into delineations of victim and predator. And I didn't want to um, I didn't want to, to take away their the character's ability to digest the experience how they wanted to digest it. And based on the world that they grew up in, obviously. So Sadie Hoagland, thank you very much for joining us on Radioactive. Your book is Strange Children. We can hear more and get a signed copy in connection with the King's English Celebration launch event, which is Tuesday the 18th, 6 p.m., um, ideally in person if possible, given the pandemic, or virtual. And again, order the book, get a signed copy. Throw out your website again one more time. SadieHoagland.com. It's pretty easy. Sadie, thank you for joining us on Radio Thank Active. you so much, Nick, for having me again. I had a great time. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with author Sadie Hoagland, who will launch her new book, Strange Children, tomorrow night, 6 p.m., online with the King's English Bookshop. Check tonight's show notes for a link so you can sign up. When we come back, Yale Shacker of Refugees International and a conversation about her latest report addressing the legacy of expedited removal, border procedures, and alternatives for reform. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and all month long, KRCL brings you Mental Health Mondays with tips and resources from local experts. Join us for the month as we help raise awareness about mental health. Find a list of resources at krcl.org. Support for KRCL comes from our listeners and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and crew. Red, White & Blues with Brian Kelm at 8. Night Train with Michelle Tanner at 10.30. And of course, start your brand new day with John Florence, weekday mornings at 6 a.m. All of our programming in the last two weeks of shows, including the Radioactive Archives, may be found online at krcl.org. So in February, President Biden called for a review of expedited removal within 120 days. And that was with an executive order. Tonight, we welcome Yale Shacker of Refugees International, which just last week issued this report addressing the legacy of expedited removal, border procedures, and alternatives for reform. And Shacker is with us now. Hi, Yael. Thank you for giving us some time. Thanks so much for having me. Can you uh, tell us a bit about yourself so our listeners understand your background and how you come to this work? Sure. Uh, I'm a historian by training, historian of uh, U.S. immigration history, um, and um, spent a couple of years teaching at the University of Connecticut, uh, spent some time as a postdoctoral fellow in, in Texas, where I got to see 
some of the issues at the border firsthand um, and in detention centers as well. Um, started working for Refugees International um, at late 2018, early 2019, did a lot of trips to the border uh, as the Trump administration rolled out some of its uh, border policies. Uh, now, Refugees International, were an organization that uh, sort of studies displacement, forced displacement all over the world, uh, and also asylum seeking and refugee seeking all over the world. And my particular focus is on the United States and the U.S. border in particular. Well, you heard us talking earlier in the hour about this launch of a platform to kind of bring together all the information for Utah DACA recipients and dreamers, as well as undocumented immigrants. And, you know, the more you think that's happening over there, that's happening a couple of states away, the more you hear about it, like, no, this is affecting my neighborhood. It's true. And one of the things that's interesting about expedited removal is that, um, Although it kind of rolls out at the beginning at the border, a lot of the process actually occurs in detention centers all over the country once people are sent there from the border. So, yes, it's a border screening process, but because it's so intimately linked to immigration detention, it actually is happening all over the country. So, first of all, explain expedited removal and kind of when it started under the Trump administration. And I understand that although uh, President Biden has revoked some of those highly restrictive policies on asylum, there's still a lot left in place. Absolutely. If I could just, historian, remember, if I could just go back for just a second, just to make sure we got the um, basic idea that, you know, it's legal to seek asylum in the United States at the border, um, whether or not you have documents or not. If you come to the border, you're allowed to seek asylum. It's a legal pathway. Um, that was established in the United States, reaffirmed in a 1980 law, the 1980 Refugee Act, very important. It also sort of brought U.S. law in compliance with the international United Nations standard on the right to seek asylum. Um, in 1996, we sort of changed procedures. Uh, we, we began this procedure called expedited removal, which is a sort of swift screening procedure for asylum seekers at the border. So if you come to the border without documents, um, you're first asked by a Border Patrol agent if you have a fear of return or you're supposed to be asked by a Border Patrol agent if you have a fear of return. And then if you say yes, sent to an asylum officer who will do a credible fear screening for you. Um, and if you pass that, um, you'll be released from detention and allowed to proceed to um, prove your case in immigration court. Um, under the Trump administration, actually, what's interesting is that expedited removal was sort of sidestepped um, and people were sort of just forced to stay in Mexico to wait their claims. They weren't actually even allowed to go through some of this process. Some people were. Some people were, but a lot of people weren't even given that access to territory that sort of implied in the procedure. Now that President and Biden has promised to sort of turn back a lot of these, um, you know, restrictions on access to the border. Um, now that that's why it's important to think about, OK, is President Biden going to start using expedited removal in the same way that had been used before. Um, and what I'm concerned about is that, you know, given that, as you said, there's sort of a mixed record now in terms of what's being revoked at the border and what's not, um, we don't want to fall back into some of the old patterns and old problems. So I'm urging the Biden administration to sort of do something a little bit different. Yeah, I, thanks for the correction of the historian in you. I appreciate that so much because I expedited removal since it doesn't affect me directly. I had no idea that it actually dates back to 96. And so what we're talking about is Title 42 of the U.S. Code. Uh, I'm looking at some of the data in the report that was issued last week. 
And can you take us there and explain uh, what is still being uh, done and what you're hoping to push the the uh, Biden administration to specifically? Right. So um, one of the Trump administration policies that was put in place um, just when the COVID pandemic hit in March of 2020 was this invocation of Title 42, as you mentioned, which is actually the stat, the code, the, statute, the, the, the part of our legal code that refers to a ban on border crossing and actually uh, it bans people or it stops people who don't have documents from asking um, to be admitted at ports of entry. And it also, if you happen to make it in um, without authorization, it, it allows for your expulsion uh, on the grounds of public health. So supposed grounds of public health. In practice, what it's meant is that there's basically no asylum at the border um, and no ability to seek asylum at the border. And right now, the Biden administration is sort of inching its way towards allowing some people in under this policy. Um, but in general, the, the Title 42 authority is still in place. Many families are being exempted for it for some reasons I lay out in the report. Uh, and what I'm hoping, as I said, is that those who are being exempted from it, and once this Title 42 lifts all told, um, because at this point, there was never really a good public health justification for it because it targeted just asylum seekers and, it, you know, truckers and everybody else and tourists could sort of enter the country. Uh, no problem. It was just these folks. Um, but, and now that we have vaccines and things are sort of looking up in terms of the pandemic, there's really definitely no justification for this. So uh, once we see hope that have this lifted and for those who are being exempted from it now, I really hope they're not placed into this expedited removal process, but something else. So over the last three years in your report, you say there have been several proposed fixes to the asylum system and you have proposed fixes, the good, the bad and the insufficient. Can you run us through those? Sure. So, you know, the way we handle asylum is really convoluted. Um, you know, one of the points of my report was to say, um, you know, this isn't only a Trump problem. Like this has been building, as I mentioned, for a long time, um, but it was sort of exacerbated under the Trump administration in many ways. It was sort of the Trump administration put in like an expedited, expedited removal, of, I, would, I would say. But so some of the proposed solutions involve, for example, I mean, one of the problems is that we have the system where, as I said, as I said earlier, people are, if they pass this credible fear screening, um, they're sent to the immigration courts where they wait for a very long time. This basically satisfies nobody um, because there's a big backlog, uh, both of asylum officers doing the initial screenings and in the immigration courts. So one of the suggestions is to actually have folks um, have their cases just handled by asylum officers and not have this like second, not be put in basically two lines, both the immigration court and the asylum officer line. And my my only uh, suggestion to that is that, that that's fine, except for, as I said earlier, the key thing is we don't want the screenings to be happening at the border before people really have a chance to collect evidence, present a claim, get an attorney. As we heard in the DACA segment, you know, it's very important to get an attorney. It's even more important for an asylum claim because we have this sort of Kafka-esque system of how you prove that you're worthy of asylum. So you really need an attorney for this. And what happens with detention is not only is it traumatic for the people who have suffered persecution to be detained um, 
and perhaps even separated from loved ones for that way, uh, it's also very, very difficult for them to get access to counsel. So what we want to have is a situation not where asylum officers are sent to the border to screen people while they're in detention, but are actually there's sort of a way in which we can receive people more humanely and allow them to pursue asylum in the asylum office at their final destination location when they have time to sort of gather evidence and get counsel. Uh, you did a press briefing last week that I listened in on, and you shared a story of an individual caught up in this, in particular, come through a port of entry. Would you share that with us? Sure. I shared two, so I'll, I'll, I hope Both I of them. We got time for both. We got time. Okay, okay. So there's two stories I want to share that I think really highlight some of the problems with expedited removal and why I, I really think it would be great if we, if we moved to sort of a different reception system. One involved um, an asylum seeker from Guinea, uh, from Africa. So as some of you may have read, you know, it's not just Central Americans, uh, Mexicans, people from the south of, you know, this this hemisphere seeking asylum um, at our, our at our border, at our southwestern border, but also people traveling from way far away, uh, including from Africa partly because it's become so difficult to access asylum in Europe and elsewhere, sort of like a worldwide shutdown for asylum seekers. So one of the things that happened was this man who um, was a gay man in Guinea where homosexuality is uh, prohibited, which relates to the previous segment as well. Um, you know, he, his partner was killed. He was tortured in prison, uh, tried to get to the United States through a long uh, route. And one of the reasons he came to the United States had to do with having met Americans when he thought the United States would be a place where he could go. And he knew homosexuality was something that at least uh, at that point would be more accepted. So he traveled um, a kind of complicated route um, via uh, Brazil, and then um, all through the Darien Gap, which is one of the it's a it's a it's quite a trek to get um, there to the to the to T, to T, Tijuana where he entered, um, and he asked for asylum at a port of entry. Uh, it was transferred to a detention, put into expedited removal, was transferred to a detention center in Texas, South Texas, um, and was there for. A good 10 months, 11 months, even though he had passed this initial screening, um, there's a rule that if you actually ask for asylum at a port of entry, you're not entitled to a bond hearing with an immigration judge. So he basically, DHS just sort of refused to let him out. Um, this was sort of at a time when, you know, the, the idea was we got to keep people detained or else that's the only effective deterrent. Well, how that would be a deterrent for this young man who, you know, um, clearly had a horrible experience at home and made this horrible journey. Uh, it's hard to see what level of cruelty we would have to get to to deter him from coming. But anyway, that's what happened. And he was in detention and eventually he won asylum. And my point here is, is like, why would we put him through that, those that 10 months of detention? And that is a product of this expedited removal system, which is so linked to getting these screenings and detention and having difficulty getting out of detention, even if you pass that credible fear screening. The other story that I that I wanted to relate uh, has to do with a family uh, from El Salvador uh, who fled uh, like violent attacks by a uh, by MS, the gang in El Salvador, and her husband for on the, uh, a woman, to, a family on the on the on the husband in the family, the father in the family for his uh, political activity. Uh, he, his wife, and their three children uh, fled El Salvador, presented at a port of entry in Juarez, which is right across the border from El Paso, Texas. Uh, was turned away by the border patrol, so they sought admission. 
they, they crossed the border without authorization after that were detained by the Border Patrol. Um, and at that point, this is where um, our law is, again, this Kafka system, we're, we're not allowed to detain. We have a, a protective law in the books that doesn't allow us to detain um, parents with children for more than 20 days. So what the Border Patrol opted to do, what DHS, Department of Homeland Security, opted to do was to separate the family release the mother and the children to go to her go to the parents and detain the father and put him through expedited removal thinking that a deterrent consequence again this process was necessary so he ended up again being separated from his kids for a couple of months past his credible fear interview and luckily his wife who had been released managed to get an attorney uh, who could help him get get out of detention and join her in Colorado where they're now settled and Guess what? They want asylum in immigration court in Colorado. So again, the question is now, you know, the assumption behind expedited removal is that it's really to deter and to deter people who don't have meritorious claims at the end of the day. And what we're seeing is that it's really trapping and harming people who very much do have meritorious claims. And there's really no reason for it. It's weaponizing bureaucracy instead of coming up with a solution. And under your long term solutions, I wanted to talk about about that in your report, because the first one is uh, long-term reforms, some needing congressional cooperation. What's your read on that ever happening? Well, you know, I, you know, I feel like it's a hard one, you know, especially because, I mean, linking back to the last segment, what I worry about very much is trade-offs being made, you know, maybe if we're, what we can get DACA, but that's going to require a trade-off of security at the border or some strict, I mean, you're right, like, is there going to have to be a sort of humor, somebody's going to have to pay and maybe it's asylum seekers at the border um, if to get anything done, right? And it's just a heart-wrenching um, like way in which it's, it becomes a trade-off between deserving folks. And it, it's, it's really hard, but there are some reforms on there that I actually, there's, there's significant congressional support. Like, so for example, my last recommendation is actually for an independent immigration court. Um, you know, a lot of members of Congress have already come out in support of this. This has been a problem again for since the 1980s, this has been a problem where, um, we don't have a good system and a fast system. We don't have enough resources in the immigration court. But beyond that, even if we hired a million judges, if we kept this bureaucracy the way it was set up, uh, it wouldn't be independent and it wouldn't be fair. Um, and this is because you might think that an immigration court is a court like the federal courts, like part of the judiciary branch of our government. It isn't. It's actually part of the executive branch of our government. So immigration judges are basically employees of the Department of Justice. They are not judges in the traditional sense. And this leads to a lot of perverse um, situations where you basically have a lot of prosecutors as judges. And the system is sort of, at this point, quite rigged uh, as a sort of you're the, both the judge and the ICE prosecutor in court sort of have that prosecutorial background. Uh, and what you have is a situation where, yeah, like law enforcement is controlling the court. So it's it's really an arm of law enforcement rather than a independent court. And I think what that what that recommendation is saying is like, let's 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 really move towards a more independent system. 
Well, I think that is an understanding that I did not have until talking with you, that it isn't independent the way I think of a court system. So that they're allowed to call it a court, first of all, is angering. But uh, the other thing that I appreciate in your historian view is that this has been going on for a while. I mean, since the start of the frigging country, but definitely what we're dealing with right now, uh, you can trace back to the 1980s, like you were saying. We recently had a letter signed by our own governor laying the full blame for the immigration boondoggle at President Biden's feet. But it's not. So how do we get past this? How do we get past this, Yale, to come up with something that's not only fair, but delivers the compassionate refuge and sanctuary that is needed by so many people? That's a great, I mean, that's like the, you know, $85 million question. <laughs> but I do think that, um, you know, one, I mean, first and foremost, we do not really have a humanitarian reception system at the border. We have spent our resources on detention and enforcement. That has been the goal. And, uh, you know, the asylum, like, especially since 1996, that has definitely been the case where you see we have, you know, thousands and thousands of detention beds. Um, in fact, ICE, you know, under COVID, you know, the detention of people in, in, in immigration and custom enforcement detention has has had gone down. It's on its way up again under Biden. So this is this is a problem where we don't really have a way of receiving folks. I mean, refugees who are resettled from overseas um, and unaccompanied minors um, go into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And I think it would probably be helpful if we thought of at least some of the asylum seekers coming to the border as people who should be received by a non-enforcement agency as well. Um, again, more, more attention to adjudicating the claims by the asylum office or by an independent immigration court would be fantastic. Uh, but I also think you know, going back to the, the, the bigger question has to do with whether or not uh, folks coming from the Western Hemisphere have ever really been given a fair shot at the asylum standard. Um, you know, we've since the 1980s, you know, in the 1980s, it started where you know, because of geopolitics at that time, you know, the grant rates for Salvadorans and Guatemalans was minuscule, two, three percent. Um, when you know, people coming from Iran or Poland were getting in 50, 60, 70 percent of the time. And it's not because the violence and the persecution that they were fleeing was really, you know, categorically different. So I think we really need to rethink that. And then, you know, there are the question is, you know, now we've got new types of forced displacement happening and how can we construct a system that will actually account for those kinds of forced displacement we're talking about climate issues now new things i mean they've been there for a long time but they've gotten much much worse recently and i think one of my recommendations is to really think about okay we have this asylum standard and there are people there are more central americans coming to the border definitely should be able to qualify under that standard if we devise procedures that were fair in the ways I've described. But some people wouldn't because they're fleeing new types of, you know, new types, they have new types of protection needs. And that's why I suggest sort of thinking about, and this requires Congress, so who knows, but thinking about a more, a another kind of protection standard that if you can't meet the asylum standard, but you'd be really harmed or you'd suffer harm if you were returned to your home country, how can we devise a protection system for you as well? Yael, thank you so much for giving us some time and for this report. We'll put a link in the show notes, folks, so you can read it for yourself. But Refugees International, how can people connect with Refugees International? Thanks for asking. Yeah, please just go to our web website, which is refugeesinternational.org. 
Um, and, you know, my reports there, I've done lots of reporting and, and reports by several others uh, about forced displacement around the world. Historians, keepers of the facts, thank you so much, Ayal. Keep doing it. Thanks for having me. Yael Shecker of Refugees International. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the organization as well as her new report, Addressing the Legacy of Expedited Removal, Border Procedures and Alternatives for Reform. We'll also have a link for a petition you can sign to tell the Biden administration to say loud and clear, we can welcome people seeking asylum. Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio of Utah. I'm Laura Jones. Have a great night and thank you for listening.